Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Zeal Okogeri. As a young boy in Africa, Dr. Okogeri survived a brutal civil war that claimed more than 2 million civilian lives. He can relate to the suffering of others. He has been a teacher and author in the fields of self-development and spiritual growth for more than 25 years. Through his writings, teachings, and storytelling, he inspires awareness. Dr. Okogeri has served as a doctor of chiropractic medicine for 20 years, during which time he has treated thousands of patients from all cultural backgrounds and walks of life. Dr. Okogeri leads weekly classes on kindness, storytelling, and meditation, during which participants share stories about how they were transformed by unexpected kindness from people, especially strangers, and how their gifts of kindness transformed others. Dr. Okogeri has traveled to more than 35 countries for awareness and leads meditation retreats to Tibet, Nepal, and India. He is the author of four books, including his most recent book, You Can Never Go Wrong by Being Kind, an anthology on the transformative potential of kindness and compassion. Zeal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to have you here today. Of course, we're talking about kindness and compassion, and that's something that you've spent quite a lot of time in your life and career focused on. Yes. And you've written some really amazing books that we're going to spend some time talking about today as well. Okay. To start with, though, I would like to spend some time talking about your background. Okay. You have one of the more interesting and colorful backgrounds of most of the people I've met. Well, thank you. <laughs> and uh, undoubtedly, that's uh, shaped a lot of who you are as a person today and your interests. Yeah. So let's start with that. If I recall correctly, you were born and raised in Nigeria. Yes. I was um, born in a village called Afikpo, spelled A-F-I-K-P-O, mm. in southeastern Nigeria. That's where I grew up, and um, that's where my journey started. Tell us a little bit about what it was like in Afikpo. Well, Afikpo. <laughs> life was very peaceful. It was fun. It was like living in the countryside. Uh, we have um, a lot of greenery, um, lots of forest. Um, we don't live very far from where we have um, a forest full of monkeys. Wow. And um, I remember as a kid, we had um, a monkey as a pet. Wow. Yes, yes, we did. And um, I remember my brother walking around with a, a banana, <laughs> and the monkey would sneak up behind him, take the banana away from him, oh, wow. and run up to the trees. Those monkeys are very clever, aren't oh, they? Oh, they're too clever. They're very sharp. What was the name of the monkey? We didn't have a name for it. We just called it monkey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, he kept us busy. It was a lot of fun, but he just made too much mess. And mm -hmm. it would shake up the trees and, you know, eat fruits. It was always at the guava tree. We had many guava trees and mango trees in my yard. Mm -hmm. So it was a perfect setting for it. We had about 50 mango trees in my yard. And lots of guavas, papaya, and sugar canes. So we had it. It was like um, almost like a, a mini orchard, if you would. Wow. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. Sounds like an idealic setting for oh, a child to grow definitely, up. Definitely, definitely. We're always chasing everything that moves. Yeah. Grasshoppers. <laughs> <laughs> fun. Sounds like so much fun. Yeah. So you you also had a pretty large family, I understand. Yeah, my bro my uh, mother had um, 
11 children, mm-hmm. nine boys and two, two girls. The two girls are the very last born. So she had nine boys, one after the other. I mean, we had our own you know, soccer team growing up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, see, so it, was, it was really a lot of fun to have yeah. so many siblings. There's never a boring moment. There's no dull moment. We mm-hmm. always had things to do. Mm-hmm. And of course, can, as you can imagine, lots of fighting when we were little kids, you know. I bet. Yes. And your father, you talk a little bit about in your books as well, he was a very interesting character, a real yes. charismatic person. Yes. Tell us a bit about him. Well, um, that is hard to, to talk about, but <laughs> because he was so multifaceted. I see. You know, it's like um, everything rolled up in one. Um, one minute he's, he's a lot of fun. You know, he was a brilliant man. Um, mm. He had um, a PhD in physics. Wow. Um, he had an MD. He had um, masters, several master's degrees in different disciplines. So he was academically strong. And um, as a physician, he studied many aspects of healing, from traditional medicine to homeopathic medicine. In fact, when I was um, a young boy, he and I represented Africa in the World Congress of Homeopathic Medicine in mm-hmm. England and in the, in the Netherlands as well. So he was a very, um, a very strong personality, a very imposing man. He was the cultural, um, the traditional leader of who I came from. He was, um, I don't like to use the word king, but he was like the traditional mm-hmm. leader of, my, mm-hmm. of where I came from. Um, so he was very well versed in the customs, the tradition of where I came from. And we have an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Nobody is reading the book or this is what happened, um, you know, 50 years ago. It's all passed down. Right. If I meet an old man, he'll sit me down. He'll say, you are the son of, you know, uh, Isoko Geri, which is my father. And he was the son of that. And your grandfather, my grandfather did this. And your great they know the whole history. Mm-hmm. They know the whole thing just by memory, was well, just passed down from their great-grandfather to their, all the way down to their father and to them. So my father was very well versed with the customs and the traditions of the land. And um, he was in a position to transmit a lot of this wisdom to others. I see. Yeah, he was also a, re- a religion founder. He founded uh, a religion called the Momihi religion, which synthesized Christianity with um, the Eastern hmm. teachings like um, reincarnation and so on, which is not generally a part of Christian teachings. Mm-hmm. But he incorporated all that and established a religion which had quite a large following um, wow. during his lifetime. So he was um, doing so many things at one. He had um, a medical practice going. He had a religion going. <laughs> he at one time he owned a, a, med, a medical school, the Nigerian College of Homeopathic Medicine. He owned it, and he was training doctors, MDs in Nigeria, mm-hmm. many of who are very successful doctors today. Um, he had um, three wives, four at one time, but one was driving him crazy. So he, <laughs> <laughs> so, he so he let her go. Yeah, for most of us, one is enough. <laughs> <For> most of, <laughs> so you can imagine the type of personality you would have, you would be. To have all that going at the same time. Sure. And also, he had six of us, six children, 
in private uh, universities abroad mm -hmm. that he's taking care of. So he, I think he had his handful. Sounds like it. Yeah. So he had to have that personality. You can just imagine what that personality would be to keep all that going. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously very driven. And very, very driven. And <laughs> a lot of interests, too. It yes. Sounds a little bit like somebody else I know who's sitting in front of me here. Oh, is that so? I don't know. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, I mean, with the interests in religion yeah. and with the interests in medicine and healing um i'm just wondering like from your background growing up in your village and yeah. being part of this big family like and what kinds of values do you think you developed and experienced coming from that you know when i was a, a young man one thing about africa that i really began to appreciate after i left africa was um that africans are very proud people. They may be poor, they may not have a lot to show for, but they are principled and they live a life of dignity. When I was a young man growing up in my village, because usually young men would go to the big cities to get a job and they'll, during the um, holiday season, Christmas, they'll come back to the village and they'll bring nice things. We have a gift in society. So you bring gift for the elders, for your family. That's, that's just the way it is where I came from. So when I was growing up, a young man who had been in the big city for a couple of years comes back home with a big car, very expensive car. And the elders will call him by aside and they say, son, we don't know what you're into, but we know you just went to the big city two years ago. Can you explain to us how you came about to own a car like this? I see. And if he doesn't have a, a good explanation for how he came about this, maybe it's his boss's car that he's driving. If he doesn't have a good explanation, the elders will tell him, we don't want any part of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And if you brought any gifts, we don't want any of it. So there's a sense that the way that you conduct your life and what you do is important, not just what you acquire in life. How you acquire it is very important. This was how it was when I was growing up. Of course, things have changed since then. You know, the encroachment of um, Western civilization um, has tended to undermine the African traditional value system. Mm. Um, they see the TV, they see CNN, and all these are beamed all over the world now. This, the internet is all over the world. Yeah. Um, so you begin to um, corrupt some of these beautiful values that we've, was, we have maintained for so long. Mm -hmm, sure. And um, there's now a preference um, among the youth for what is going on outside of their um, own you know, culture and country. Mm -hmm. You know, they're saying the, the grass is always green on the other side. Sure. Yes. Um, until they come, they become like myself. I've been outside of Africa, you know, since I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. I spent most of my life in the Western world. Mm -hmm. So when I look back, I begin to appreciate what we have in Africa. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't appreciate when I was there. I took it for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing that you mentioned, and I want, we're definitely going to talk more about this later, is it sounds like with the oral tradition, the importance of passing down information in the form of stories. Mm -hmm. 
and I know you've written a book here about with stories in it, and you're into stories as a means of communicating information, yes. talking about compassion and kindness, and we'll yes. talk a lot more about that later. Okay. I think that's really fascinating, and maybe something you bring from your African cultural background that's a really valuable thing to the rest of the world. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences with the Civil War in Nigeria. Yes. You talk about that in some of your books and in fact in journey to freedom the power of resilience is is dedicated to your civil war story entirely right yes it is um the war is um one of the the most devastating experience i've had in mm -hmm. this lifetime um it shook me up and everyone else that was involved in it it was starting when i was about seven years old. And as I mentioned before, my experience as a, a child, a young boy, was simply fantastic mm -hmm. with so many siblings and a beautiful village, a beautiful compound. And then suddenly war came. Mm. And why did the war come about? Nigeria is a former colony um, of Britain. And it gained her independence um, in 1960. Mm -hmm. And like many countries that were colonized by Britain, once the colonizer leaves, there's often civil war. Right. There's power vacuums they, they, and people looking yes, for this power, power struggle. Yeah. And Nigeria is not a homogeneous society. We have the Hausa Fulani in the north. We have the Yoruba in the southeast. We have the Igbos in the, in the south. Mm -hmm. So, and these three groups... Although there are many subgroups, but these three groups actually belong to three different countries mm. that were lumped into one country. Mm. When the colonizers come, they don't know who is who. They just call them, okay, this, all these guys, you all belong together. We're going to call you one country. They and, don't that, know. and that wasn't unique to Nigeria, right? That, no, no, no. It's yeah. unique to you know, other countries in Africa. Yeah. They don't know which tribes belong together, mm -hmm. which ethnic group belong together. They just lump them together. Mm -hmm. So, of course, um, we had tribal differences and cultural differences, power struggle, inequities, inequitable distribution of the natural resources. Mm -hmm. So the Igbos, my ethnic group, decided that they wanted to secede from the rest of the country and become an independent sovereign nation called Biafra. Mm -hmm. When that announcement was made, this provoked the civil war. I see. Of course, I'm not going to the details of why, you know, why did the civil war happen because that's, that's a very long story. Sure. But I'll just tell you about my direct experience with the war. So I was seven years old one day just chasing grasshoppers and, you know, birds and whatever else that mm -hmm. moved with my friends. Mm -hmm. And my father had a visitor who was a district officer for my village, newly elected so they were talking you know, a few feet away from us, and then we began to hear this noise, mm -hmm. this sound that we never heard before in my village. Then the earth began to vibrate wow. like an earthquake. Yeah, it wow. was like a you know high amplitude earthquake. Everything was shaking. Jeez. So people began to shout everywhere, and I began to run towards my father and my mother. They were calling us. Everybody, come, 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 come. Let's go hide. I ran into my mother's arm as the earth was shaking. Mm. 
and we went into the bushes, hitting the bushes, and explosions were everywhere. And at one time, I turned and picked up in the air, in the, to the sky, and I saw huge trees snap oh, like toothpicks wow. as bullets rained from every direction. Wow. I don't. I didn't think we we're gonna make it. I, I thought that was it. Uh, must have been just absolutely terrifying. I was just waiting for everything to black out. That you know. Yeah, then gosh. we call it the day. Call it the life. Oh. <laughs> so this continued. This air raid continued. Uh, my father and his friend they couldn't take it anymore. So in the middle of the air raid, they went back into the house to get my father's double barrel guns, mm -hmm. and they were fighting back. Wow. They were out there shooting the aircraft, trying to take them down. Do you saw them shooting their guns? I didn't see them. I heard them. You I, heard I, them. I was taking cover with oh you know, my gosh. the rest of my siblings and uh -huh. my mom. They went back, grabbed the guns. The houses were collapsing. They went down. You mm -hmm. know, they, he knew where he kept his guns. Mm -hmm. They grabbed it. You know, these are warriors. They, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they start, they, they start you know, fighting back. Wow. So, fortunately... The air raid subsided, and we were able to come out. And it was known, it was made known to us, that the Nigerian soldiers would be taking over our village any moment. Wow! So it was time for us to evacuate the village. Wow! Evacu, you have one hour to pack. For the next three years. So they were on their way, and you knew it. Oh yeah! And we, you had to get out of there. We need. We had to get out. Wow! You know, and we had a nice home. We had, you know, many nice things, you know, pianos and organs and, mm -hmm. you know, what do you take? Yeah. So we just got a few things and we had a um, British car called Humber. It looked a little bit like Bentley. <laughs> you know? And um, we yeah. had um, the Peugeot, uh -huh. two cars. My father could only drive one of them. So we put everything in the Humber mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Um, we took off with the Humber and began to evacuate the village. And it was a very airy journey because there are columns of refugees now, my villagers. Mm. We now have refugees. Everybody's trying to get out of there. Yeah, they were lined up. Yeah. You know, and lined up and people carrying different things on their heads. Some even carries goats, mm -hmm. you know, on their shoulder. Mm -hmm. You got to eat something while you're, you, don't, you don't know where you're going. You're just getting out of the village. And people are crying because their loved ones were wounded during the air raid. Sure. Some are shocked because their children or loved ones were killed during the air raid. Mm. And they're just asking, Dihai Maria, Dihai what, what, what have we done? Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are inner, innocent people in a oh. village that had no idea this was coming and had nothing to do with it was, the civil war. It, it was hard. Yeah. It was really hard. Gosh. And there's smoke everywhere. Uh -huh. Smoke everywhere. Um, roofs on fire mm. and the smell of smoke and everything burning mm. oh my god mm. so we had to drive around this massive amounts of people trying to get out mm -hmm. you know i remember my father just honking the horn for people just allow him a little room to drive by mm -hmm. you know and we made it to the next city which was which is called amasri but we learned that after we had past our village into the next village, the air raid had come and bombed 
this huge amount of people, refugees escaping. Wow, so nowhere was safe. As a result, not many people made it out of the village alive. Mm, wow. This was the greatest catastrophe our people village has ever suffered. Oh. I mean, many people did make it, make it out, but a lot of people died mm -hmm. trying to get out. Oh, so tragic. So for the next three years, we ran from village to village trying to escape harm. But then, you know, I saw a lot of kindness and compassion from people during mm -hmm. the war. Mm -hmm. War has a way of making people angels and showing the worst of human beings. Mm -hmm. You see human beings behaving worse than animals in the wilderness, but you also see human beings at their best. Mm. Because everywhere we went to, we get into a village, the chief of the village is called upon and say, these are people who are running away from their village. Mm -hmm. The chief will take us on as his guest. He'll kick his children out of their rooms mm -hmm. and put us there. Mm -hmm. The chief will provide for us, do whatever he can do to make sure we are okay mm -hmm. until we need to move on to the next village or the next city. So people tried to help each other out. Oh, yeah. In the time, this time of need. It and, is amazing, Aaron, yeah. when you see people trying to help each other out. And mm -hmm. these are people they don't even know. Mm -hmm. They will provide for them. The other villagers, they'll like shipping food mm -hmm. to help this incoming guest. So were these people, I know you said there were various different ethnic groups. <laughs> were these all the, the ones that you were coming across, were they the ethnic group of? Ibos. Ibos, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Although they spoke different dialects, I but see. they are all Igbos. I see. Yes. We're still in the Igbo region, you know, of this, this southern Nigeria. So this went on for three years. You yes. were going from village to village. Yes. Basically finding sanctuary and staying out of harm's way. Yeah. You know, sometimes um, we, we are out hiding the whole day. Because the bombing and, you know, the jet fighters were just relentless. Oh, wow. It just kept going the whole day. Wow. Where, where would you hide? Under trees and, you, know, and, you know, sometimes the, in the gutter, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and hoping that it doesn't fall right in front of you. The bomb doesn't fall right in front mm -hmm. of you. Mm -hmm. And your heart is beating there all, all day, Yeah, you know, and um, waking up alive was reason to be grateful every day. Just yeah. waking up and you say, oh, wow, I'm still here. Yeah. You know, that was reason to be grateful during the war. Mm. And the war helped me to understand that many things that we place importance on are really not important in the final analysis. You know? Like what kind of things? Well, you know, when you're running for your life, your property is irrelevant. <laughs> right. All the things you spend, your, your house, your cars, your nice clothes, whatever you place value that is material, mm -hmm. is unimportant mm -hmm. when you're fighting for your life. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You know, you have, um, you know, such a big home. It, what relevance is it? Sure. War puts things in perspective for mm -hmm. you. Yeah. And the other thing is that 
it also allows you to recognize your own strengths mm -hmm. and the strength and endurance of human beings. Mm -hmm. During the war, more than 2 million people starved to death. Mm. They died because of no food. Wow. Where we live was very close to a refugee camp. And I saw people who were practically bare bones with a big head mm. resting on a skeleton. Yeah, wow. Very little flesh left uh -huh. on their body. And they were still talking and smiling. Wow. Unbelievable uh, zeal. Yeah. What, a, what a story. And I'm, I'm sure you could talk for hours yes. about all of your experiences. Yes. But as a snapshot of what you went through, that is just um, amazing that you experienced that. You know, and importantly, I want to ask you how these experiences that you had during that period affected who you are today and the path that you found yourself on, which I, I'm assuming is important. It's an important part of who you are. Yeah. You know, um, it comes to mind because I had the pleasure of working in this office with you, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I don't know if you recall, but uh, back then you referred the patient to me <laughs> to to receive care from me. Uh-huh. And her hus she had a divorce from her husband. they be married for over 20 years and they had a divorce and she was really devastated by this divorce mm -hmm. and um, she tells me dr zeal you know every man i see on the street reminds me of my husband and i and i, I just cannot take it and she's always dressing up in very casual clothing she wasn't really taking very good care mm -hmm. of herself mm -hmm. so she came to my office and she saw my book on the shelf and she said is that your book i said yeah she said can i can i get one i said of course you can and she got a copy of my book. And I didn't see her for about a week or so. And then she walked into my office. And I swear she could have been walking out of, out of Vogue magazine. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> she was so beautifully made up. She has beautiful clothes on. Like, what, what, what's going on? I'm and I take it your book doesn't give fashion advice. <laughs> no, right? no, it doesn't. <laughs> so... I said, um, what's going on? You look great. She said, thank you. She said, let me tell you something, Dr. Zill. After I read your book, you know, normally I go to the gym and I spend about maybe 15 minutes on the treadmill and I just like do whatever, I go home. I spend an hour on the treadmill after I read your book mm -hmm. about your experiences with the war. Wow. She said that it made her divorce look like nothing. Wow. After yeah. she read my story. Well, I guess that's so true, right? And what I'm getting to is that war put things in perspective for yeah. me. It puts life in perspective. It gave me a frame of reference. Whatever that I'm going through, because life is never smooth like all the way through, you get bumps around the way. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it life, you know? So during that, those periods of challenges... I always ask myself, how is this compared to the war? Mm -hmm. And I laugh because it's nothing, nothing compared, compared to, to the war. war. Wow. During the war, if you or anybody had come to me and told me, hey, Z, you know, several years from now, you're going to be in a place called Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to get a parking ticket. <laughs> 
You're like, give me all the parking tickets you want. That's right. That's that has, right. That is compare anything to what I'm going through now. So yeah. you can imagine how life is. Yeah. You can be going through the most challenging event. And if you just have, I don't know, the faith, if you would, these things pass. Mm-hmm. These things pass. I didn't know that I would survive the war, live alone, being able to visit more than 35 countries of the world yeah. and living in some of them for a while. You probably, you, there's no way you could have pictured that when you there were is hiding in ditches and trees. Impossible. Impossible. Such a, such a thing couldn't enter my mind. Yeah. It would just be impossible for it to even register. Yeah. Yeah. So this is how life is because sometimes when we're caught up in our problems, we think we're done. No, yeah. no, you're still here. You yeah. know, things are always changing. That that's the beauty about life. Yeah. Things are always changing. Nothing is permanent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So if we we have it in mind, you know, we, we give ourselves, our mind, our spirit room to navigate to find solutions to resolve our problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Zeal. Yes. And um I encourage everybody to read more about the civil war experiences you had in journey to freedom it's just really moving and really i I think you're right just gives so much perspective on life yeah it really does it gives you you know and also tells you because people don't realize how strong they are Mm -hmm. whoever designed this human body you know, Christian will say God. We don't know who ultimately designed it. Yeah. But whoever designed it did a wonderful job. Because you will see people with a head and a skeleton and they're still moving. Mm-hmm. They're still smiling. They're still talking. They're still sharing stories. Yeah. You know, and they're disease infested. You talk a bit about resiliency, right? Oh, the resiliency is, is incredible. Yeah. Human resiliency. You know, that's what it's all about. Teaches you, you get knocked down, that's fine. But you get up and, you know, dust yourself up and you keep going. Well, in your experiences um, during the Civil War, it sounds like you saw resiliency everywhere you went. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody who was involved in it, you know, saw it. And they are an example of it too, you know, um, if they survived it. Zeal, let's move on a little bit and talk about your journey to the West. Yes. What was that like for you? And you've had an interesting (laughs) period of time since you've left Africa. Can you tell us a bit about your journey? Well, you know, when I was a young boy, everything I knew knew about the West was from my geography class Mm -hmm. in elementary school. So I left very young and um, I was... um, my dad traveled a lot. He went to medical conferences in many, many countries. And he would come back and share his stories with us. And I was always captivated, you know. And my dream was to go and see this land, you know. We call it Alibeke, the, the land of white people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty appropriate. Yeah, that's what, that is what is called in my, in my language, Alibeke, yeah. you know. Um, because all I've known is the land of black people. Now I need to go and find out about the yellow people, the red people, the white, everybody else that live in the world. Sure. You know, it, it was it was extraordinary for me, you know, to leave Africa. And my first country I visited was Brussels and Belgium. Mm-hmm. I you know we landed in Brussels, and um, it was just so busy. I have never seen people moving so quickly at the airport. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> some speaking you know strange languages yeah. french and english and god it, it was like being in a movie wow. you know yeah. in outer space yeah um it's hard oh my god my mind was i was too excited uh-huh. it was just too much yeah it was really like being on another planet oh yeah it was mm-hmm. it was and then we whisked away by evis they had to brought the uh, van to the mm-hmm. airport to take us to hilton um, airport hotel in in brussels that's where we stayed on before we continued to um to united kingdom to, to london and then to eastbourne so it, it was all this was new to me you know and eating ordering food at the hotel mm-hmm. and um, my father had to teach me how to eat <laughs> you know how to, because they served us hot boiled egg uh-huh. but then you have to use the little spoon and crack it open around it and then add all the salt and everything else pepper in it and scoop it from right i never had ate, ate eggs like that before you know yeah. this is all new to me so my father lived in england for some time that's where he went to school. He knew everything, you know. So I was learning a lot from him. He was my teacher. Mm-hmm. It was incredible because I left as a as a kid. Yeah. So everything was like a, it was like a dreamland mm-hmm. for me. Um, as an adult, of course, you have a whole different perspective. Well, let's let's hear what it was like as a as an adult for you. So you, I know you became a chiropractor. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional life? Well. I began actually, um, I have a degree in finance and international business. As time went along, I suppose the genes of my ancestors kicked in. Mm-hmm. Um, because all my ancestors were all healers, traditional healers and mystics. That's what we are known for. In my family, we have um, five doctors. My dad and my older brothers, they're all doctors. And my grandfather was you know, a healer. My great-grandfather was a healer. So... I suppose the gene kicked in and I made a, a transition from the financial world into healing. And um, I had to decide, you know, am I going to go the traditional route as a medical doctor or do I go to chiropractic or acupuncture or homeopathic? And I decided to go the natural route. Studied chiropractic and went into the practice of chiropractic. And what is really unique about chiropractic is that you can do it anywhere. You can do it once you have the awareness, you know, the, the education, the background, the training. You can get dropped off with a parachute into some land. Mm-hmm. Sure, because all you need really is your hand. your hand. Yeah. And you can begin to really treat people and help them to get well. Sure. Naturally. And mm-hmm. that is what really appealed to me. Without the intervention of drugs or surgery, although those things do have their place in healthcare. Um, but being able to do it without um, drugs, which have their own side effects, as sure, we all know, yeah. I think would be a great blessing for people. Yeah. And that's why I went that direction. Yeah. And then you got interested in world religions and meditation. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, my father did found a religion. Yeah. So earlier on, I was introduced to religion and a variety of religions. You know, I was introduced to Christianity. Mm-hmm. I was introduced to Hinduism, which is a, a part of this Eastern teaching. Mm-hmm. Then as I began to advance in my life journey, for some reason I took a deep interest in spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know 
why there are so many different spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. Basically, we all claim there is one God, but then there's so many teachings and different philosophies and doctrines. Why don't we just, just have one that yeah. covers everybody? Mm-hmm. So I began to really take interest in studying the different spiritual traditions of the world, from Christianity to Hinduism to Buddhism to every ism I can get my hand on. Mm -hmm. Not just studying from an academic point, but from a practical point. I would actually visit synagogues. I would actually visit Buddhist temples, and, and, and I would go to Tibet and meditate with monks mm-hmm. in Tibet because I wanted to learn about Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. You see, how, is Tib- how, how are the Buddhists in Tibet practice Tibetan Buddhism? Mm-hmm. And what is behind Tibetan Buddhism, for example? Mm-hmm. So you get to learn a lot about it. You learn, get to learn the history of, let's say, the Tibetan people and the Bon religion, B-O-N, which is really like a very powerful black magic mm-hmm. that the Tibetans were involved in, you know, before Guru Rampoche and King Gampo got involved and brought Hinduism to Tibet, for example. So my interest led me to study many teachings. I studied and worked even with um, theosophy with Madame Blavatsky mm-hmm. of um, Russia and um and you know, some of the people that she worked with, like yeah. Rudolf Steiner of Anthropos- Anthroposophy and um, Krishnamurti and many, many of these teachers. Mm-hmm. And I, I studied for some time with um, Kriya Yoga, Pramhansa Yogananda, and the whole um, lineage of that tradition. Mm-hmm. And I looked into Ekinkar and um, Radha Soami tradition. Um, and as I said, I was in, you know, in Catholic school, so... Catholicism was a part of my training as well, mm-hmm. and, and Christianity was a part of my training as well. So I wanted to be as well-versed as possible because people put barriers and walls between themselves and others mm-hmm. once they find out what religion or spiritual tradition that you belong to. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that we are all in this world together. We're, gonna, we're going to be dealing with each other. Yeah. We will be interacting with each other. Yeah. Nobody wears a label on their shirt and say, hey, by the way, I'm this. <laughs> you know? So your doctor could belong to a faith that you may not approve of. Your grocery attendant could belong to another faith that you think is not good or you think is, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? I think the more we learn about the variety of traditions that is a part of our world, the more we have harmony among ourselves. Well, Zeal, I think it's amazing that not only were you interested in all the different kinds of spiritual and religious traditions, but you learned about them by going and visiting them in person and really seeing what it was like meeting people and talking people who are involved with those traditions. You have to. Yeah. You have to be in it. Because when you're in it, you can feel what the people feel that belong to that tradition. Mm-hmm. Zeal, I don't mean to be asking you to give us the meaning of life here. <laughs> don't. <laughs> but I'm curious if you ever got any kind of answer to your question about why there are so many different spiritual traditions and religious traditions that 
are getting at the same kinds of things yet are so vastly different in the way they practice. Did you ever figure that one out? You know, as I travel so much over the years and been with so many different people, I realized that we are of different states of understanding. We come into this world with different states of awareness, mm -hmm. or what you call understanding. Mm -hmm. And each person is going to need a spiritual tradition that mirrors their understanding. Mm -hmm. Where you are at the moment, you're going to find a path that is good for you based on where you are at this time. How broad your awareness is. So you go with that and you receive the training for that. It might be for a while. You may be with it for maybe five years or ten years. And it's time for you to move on to another. It's almost like different schools or classes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you move on to another class, another teacher. And they will teach you something else. Mm -hmm. When they're done teaching you, you move on to learn something else from another person. Mm -hmm. But you, you have to be able to free your mind from judgment. Mm. You see? There's no right or wrong way. No, no. They're just different ways. Yeah. They're just different ways. And if you don't have the blind, if you don't have the judgment cap on, you can learn a lot from the different teachers. Mm -hmm. You see? And you just take as much as you want to take from them. You don't have to consume everything because every religion has what I call fillers. Mm -hmm. Fillers means non-essential stuff. You see, um, they have the pure essence of the religion, like the cultivation of love, the cultivation of compassion, kindness. And then on top of that, they just put on all kinds of nonsense. Yeah. You know, that shall do this, that shall not do that. Mm -hmm. You should dress this way. You should only wear white or blue. Nonsense. Right. Yeah. These things are irrelevant. We, we call them the non-essentials. Yeah. 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 So when you weed out the non-essentials, you know, which waste people's time, and you get to the essential, the meat of the religion, you find that they are similar. It seems like such a shame that different groups around the world have to see themselves as different from the others and have judgment of right and wrong there where it would be so much easier if they were allies with each other, could share knowledge and traditions, and grow spiritually from each other. Yeah, because they don't have the awareness. They think they are better, mm -hmm. better than these other people. That group is not good. You, you use the word to condemn. Sometimes you say, oh, that's a cult. Oh, mm -hmm. This is that, that's mm -hmm. this. And, and, you, and you deceive yourself. Mm -hmm. Because you can learn a lot from different, these different um, spiritual traditions. You can go to Tibet and you will see how they will treat you there. You know, and they will teach you how to practice. And they are honest. There's no pretension, no, no pretending. People are just genuinely being who they are. Yeah. Nobody's trying to look smart. Or to look, you know, hey, I know it all. Nobody knows it all. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you an interesting story. Zia. Yeah, I think you'll appreciate this. <laughs> Go ahead. When I was living in Nepal as a college student, yeah. I was living in a small house with a 
a local traditional Nepali family. Yes. And it happened to be a, a Friday night, which um, in um, the Jewish calendar is Shabbat, when the sun goes down on a Friday. And I decided for whatever reason to do a Shabbat prayer that night. And the two teenage children who lived in the house came up and they were just watching me curiously to see, you know, what I'm doing. And I, you know, I finished and then they came and they said, well, what was that you were doing? And I said, well, I was doing a Shabbat prayer. I'm Jewish. And they said, oh, could you teach us how to do it? I said to them, why do you want to learn a Shabbat prayer? <laughs> you're, you're Hindu and you have all these wonderful traditions that are wonderful. Why would you want to learn the Shabbat prayer? And they said, well, why not? Anything that helps us get closer to God and spirituality yes. is something that we would like to do. There you go. And I was blown away. I was like, what an open-minded, amazing there way you go. to look at it. Yeah. You know? yeah, because I'm always looking for a new tool. I mean, I have my own meditation practices that I do um, religiously. But if you show me something else, I'll try it for a while and see how it works. Mm -hmm. If it works, I'll incorporate it into my practice. If it doesn't work for me, I will throw it out. Sure. And just because it doesn't work for me doesn't mean it wouldn't work for someone else. Mm -hmm. As I said earlier, we are all of different states of awareness. And what we select um, depends on this state of awareness, mm -hmm. state of understanding. Uh, a big word, state of consciousness, but mm -hmm. I don't like to use the word because it's really it's kind of way too hard to understand instead of consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Zeal, let's change directions a little bit here and talk a little bit about your most recent book, You Can Never Go Wrong by Being Kind, 101 Inspirational Stories of Kindness and Generosity. And this is, uh, well, tell us a little bit about this book. Well, this is my um, favorite book, actually, because mm -hmm. <laughs> I just love this book. You can never go wrong by being kind. And the title came to me when I was meditating. I had an experience where I went out of my way to be very kind to someone, you know, and I really, really went out because I had something very important to do. Mm -hmm. But I neglected what I was going to do and instead made the arrangement to make this person happy. But when I did, this person did not appreciate it hmm. at, at all. In fact, this person made me feel as if I wasted my time. So I was um, taken aback by that experience. Hmm. And I went home because, you know, then it, it brought me down, you know, emotionally down, you know. So I went home. And I decided to meditate. And I was involved in deep meditation. I, I sang my mantra. I used the Hue mantra. Mm -hmm. And I sang the mantra for a while. And then I went into a silent meditation. And just then, I heard this voice that came, that boomed from within me. And it says, you can never go wrong by being kind. Mm -hmm. And... It, I just melted it. The whole experience just melted it. Yeah. And I got the understanding that even though this person didn't physically, consciously recognize the gift I was given, his spirit acknowledged the gift. Mm -hmm. You can never go wrong by being kind. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's an amazing story. So this book is a anthology. We have stories from many people from around the world. Many of them are my friends um, from all over the world. We have from here in Hawaii to my friends in Japan, China, people from Africa, mm -hmm. people from Austria, you know, from Austria, you know, Vienna in Austria, and, and so on. You sort of put out the word that you're going to be putting this anthology together. Yes. Sort yes. of solicit, in, invited people to yes. submit stories. For yes. Them. And some of them, many of them are people who contributed to Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Oh, wow. Yes. So uh -huh. a lot of their, some of their contributors are also in this book. Mm -hmm. So the, the goal of this book is to tell stories and show the author's experiences with the transformative potential of kindness. Because from my experience, you know, I've been teaching kindness stories, workshops and classes and meditation classes. And one of the things I, I realize is that by recounting stories of kindness, there's a tendency for this to reinforce further kind behavior mm -hmm. and also um, to increase your feelings of gratitude. You see, each time you retell, like I retold stories about my war mm -hmm. and how people were so kind to us and accommodate my family and I, it rekindled those feelings of kindness mm -hmm. as I just told you this story. That is the aim of this book, for people to read it. And it allows them not only to appreciate the stories that really warm the heart in this book, but also it will help them to recollect some of their stories of kindness and compassion. And in doing so, it will reinforce the feelings of kindness and have them also affect people in their lives with kindness and, and compassion. In this way, it just continues to spread and spread and spread. Sure, it makes a lot of sense. It's almost like the book is a long mantra of kindness. That's it, you know. Right. So that is the um, aim behind this book, to mm -hmm. help spread kindness and compassion. Well, I felt very uplifted when I read the book, and I can attest to the fact that I felt more in touch with my own compassion and kindness by reading that. It's such a positive read, and the stories are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. I was wondering, do you have one that you'd like to read today? There's one that comes to mind right away. Okay. Yes. Let's hear it. You know what? I'm going to just tell it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this story um, happened to me, um, you know, when I was still in my 20s. Um, that's been some years ago. And um, mm -hmm. I, was, I was a businessman. I was exporting computers to Africa. And I um, owned a company in Victoria Island in Nigeria and another company here. So my role was to export computers to Nigeria, and I had a staff of about 10 people in my company, and they mostly sell. So I would go from here to Greece. My brother lived in Greece, mm -hmm. in Athens, to Nigeria. It was just a frequent, and I was going regularly. And because I'm an international traveler, I'm always impeccable with my itineraries and making sure I cash planes on time. Mm -hmm. Because if you miss one flight, you know what happens. Everything else is ruined. Right. You know? It's like a chain reaction. Exactly. 
So one during one of these visits, I went to Nigeria and I was on my way back. And I always stayed at the Sheraton Hotel in a place called Ikeja in, in Lagos. So this one trip, I was coming back to the U.S. And I was going to fly to Athens to visit my brother first. And I was taking Egypt Air. So I was going to go from Lagos to Cairo, Cairo to Athens, and then spend some time with my brother and continue to the U.S. So my flight was going to take off at 10 a.m. the next morning. So I figured I'll set my alarm for 6 o'clock, my travel alarm. And also I called the hotel to wake me up at 6 a.m., wake up call. So I figured I wake up at 6, I already packed everything. All I have to do, change clothes, <laughs> put on my shoes, take everything, have a concierge come, pick up my things, out the door by 7 a.m., to the airport, check in, have plenty of time to have breakfast at the airport, and enjoy my flight to Greece. A near foolproof plan. That's it. That was my, <laughs> that was my plan. It, it was all set. It, you know, it always worked all the time. You know, so <laughs> right. That's the way I always did it. But you know what, Erin? The next morning, you know what time I woke up. <laughs> I, I don't I, want to wait your I, guess. I, I woke up at 9.45 a.m. Oh, gosh. And the flight's at 10. My flight, it will be in the taking off in the air to be in the air at 10 a.m. Wow. And my hotel is at least an hour from the airport. And given the traffic in Lagos, forget it. There is no way. No way. There is no way I'm going to get out of that hotel and to the airport. Even if I had a helicopter, it wouldn't happen. And I just could not believe it. This has never happened in all my years of traveling. How could my alarm fail me? How could the wake-up call fail me? So when I looked at my alarm clock, I said, no, it's not correct. So I called downstairs to the um, lobby. I said, well, what happened? You know, because I stayed there all the time. I know most of the people there. Say, what, what, what happened to you guy? Are you are you now not doing your your job? <laughs> he says, so we've been calling you since six a.m. Oh, they were about to send somebody to my room to see uh -huh. if I'm okay. They've been calling me every half an hour since six a.m. And my alarm travel alarm clock also went off. I didn't hear any of it. I was so mad. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was so frustrated because I know now. I have to rebook my flight. I have to pay penalty fees. And I know I have to book another hotel room. Mm -hmm. That's if I get the flight the next day, that right. is. It all of a sudden becomes a major hassle. Oh, my God. And I didn't have anything else planned for the day. What am I going to do with myself the whole day? <laughs> right. So fortunately, I did get a, another flight for the next day. And I did pay a huge penalty, as I expected. And I rebooked my room for another night mm -hmm. and had to pay for the hotel just expenses I didn't expect. Anyway, I decided that what I was going to do for the day was go sightseeing. So I hired a car with a driver from the hotel. And they took me out to the hole in you know, Lagos looking around. We stopped over, have lunch. It was pretty good, but I was still mad. You know? so I didn't fully enjoy it because mm -hmm. I was still very upset with myself. So around evening time, I returned to the hotel opened my door, entered my room, and of course, the first thing you do, turn on the TV, right? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I'm by myself, nothing to do. So I turned on my TV and this breaking news. The flight to Cairo that I was supposed to take crash landed in Cairo. Oh, no. Yes. Unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And I'm looking at it. My legs went numb. I just, uh, I just like sat on the bed. Zeal, that's unbelievable. I just like, just like, you know, uh, just sat on the bed. Yeah. I said, what? What? That was my flight that crash landed in Cairo. Uh, and here I am beating myself up. Somebody had my back. Yeah. And here I was calling myself all kinds of names, being upset all day. Unbelievable, Zeal. Yes. Yes. So, uh, so what's the lesson there? When, you know, then I became grateful. <laughs> well, okay, that's the lesson. Right. Then I began to thank God <laughs> yeah. oh. for the relentless generosity of spirit. Oh. I began to to express my gratitude, you know, oh. and that taught me a very important life lesson. Because many times in life, when we don't get the job we expected to get, when a relationship that we had high hopes for went south, or went sour, when something we really wanted to happen didn't happen, we get very upset we begin to really beat up on ourselves and, and beat up on other people. What if what happened was for your own good? It's very hard to see things that way when things don't go the way we expect them yeah. to. What if the fact that your boyfriend left you or your girlfriend left you, what if that was for your own good? What if it was for your own good? What your, your, your boss fired you. Yeah. What if that was for your own good so you can get a job that is better than what you have? Yeah. So when things happen in my life now, you know, I don't, I have to take a step back and look at it. Yeah. You know, and say, well, I don't know why this happened, but thank you. Well, and the fact of the matter is we have no idea how the future is going to play out for us, right? No. And a part of gratitude that I have learned is being grateful for the things that you are not aware that happened in your favor. Because every day, many things happen in our favor that we are not aware of. It happens every single day for you and I and other people. Interesting. Every day. Right, we're so focused on what we can see right yes. in front of us. And that's, you know, we get a, a new car, we get, somebody does something for us, we say, oh, thank you, I'm so grateful. How about all the things that happened for you that you're not even aware of? Sure, sure. How yeah. about all the, the calamities that you missed, all the accidents that you missed, that somebody made you go right instead of going left? Absolutely, and again... Many of the times you may have no idea that those are actually happening. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. the world is buzzing around you. There's yeah. 5 billion people, 6 now, billion people. Now, look at, look at this situation with me missing this flight that crashed. Yeah. What if I didn't see it on TV? I wouldn't have known. And I wouldn't have been grateful for what happened. Right. 
great point. If I didn't see it, I would still be upset about it. Right. I didn't know, you know, I was somebody saved me or something saved me. I would have still been upset about the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. But now I yeah. saw the, the before and after, and I get to appreciate it, and, 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 and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, I, well, I just, I think that that happens every single day. Like, you're delayed 15 minutes yeah. for something, yeah. and then you get in your car, and you're swearing under your breath about being late. And you have no idea that had you left 15 minutes before, yeah. you might have been in an accident yeah. in some spot where something bad was yes. happening. We don't see those things. That's why in my own prayers, I always pray and express my gratitude for all the relentless generosity of spirit that I am completely unaware of. Yeah. And I give that to anyone who would like to practice that. Yeah. So... That brings us to the next topic I would like to spend a few minutes with you on. All right. And that is about the idea of practicing kindness and compassion and generosity. Yes. On a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. How can people be more mindful of doing that with their busy lives and the irritations they have? Yeah. I think the first step is to start with yourself. If you have a practice of prayer or meditation, my suggestion would be to do it consistently mm -hmm. every single day, unfailingly, perhaps twice a day or more if you can, because that would help you to tune in within yourself mm -hmm. and act from your core, which is what we call love, compassion. And with that, start by being kind to your own self. Start by being kind to your own self. It's hard to give away something that you don't have. Be kind to your own self to begin with. How do you do that? Take care of yourself. Eat well mm -hmm. to begin with. Exercise. Um, if you're going to eat, eat what you would offer a guest visiting from another country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't eat junk and then offer your guest something really great. <laughs> right. You know, if you're going to buy clothes, buy something really nice for yourself. Yeah. You know, whatever you can afford, but let it be nice. Treat yourself like a sacred entity. And I don't know if this plays into it, Zeal, but, you know, in my psychotherapy practice, obviously a big part of being kind to oneself is what one says to oneself on a daily basis, the, the cognitive Ex aspect excellent. of it, right? The self-talk. The self-talk. Very important. We have to watch that, mm -hmm. our self-talk, because that can cause us to be rather upset if we're not saying nice things to ourselves or if we take things too personal. So that's the first step, being kind to yourself. Now you take this kindness for yourself and then you expand to other people. You become more cognizant of what is going on around you. Many people have no idea of what is going on around them. They're just like machines. Yeah. You're walking behind someone and suddenly they just stop. They don't know possibly that somebody's behind them or they just spray their arms. They just do things as if they're the, they're the only person on earth. They don't think about other people around them. And when you're acting out of kindness, whether you want to um, help an elderly person carry their grocery to their car, 
do it from the heart. Don't do it out of obligation. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm supposed to be kind. Let me do this. No, no, no. That's why I mentioned prayer or meditation as a daily practice. Then you can act genuinely, authentically. Because sometimes I will see beggars will come to me and I wouldn't give. But then I will walk across one beggar that said, can you help me? And I walk across, it could be half a block, and I stop and I go back and I will help that very one. So it's an intentional decision to be kind. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, you know, it's almost instinctive because kindness is an, is an inherent quality within all human beings. When you see a child, this traffic, and the child is running across the road and this car's coming, you don't fold your arm and say, oh, that's interesting. Let me see if this kid gets hit. Right. Nobody does that. No, of course you, not. You start, you start screaming frantically. Right. You, you st sometimes you run yes. to save the kid. Yes. It's, you know, it's within us. Yes. Somebody told me a story from, that happened years ago of um, a young man who tried to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. maybe 17 years old young man and the cops were called it was an overlook so the police came came the police car came with two police officers and one led approaching the kid begging the kid to reconsider mm -hmm. and the other officer followed from behind and they kept approaching the kid gradually cautiously and they got to the point where this young man was standing and they pleading to him, hey, you have a whole life ahead of you. Don't do this, you know. And just before the first officer grabbed his hand, the young man jumped. Oh. And the officer jumped with him, oh. grabbing his arm. Uh -huh. And the other officer grabbed the, the other officer's oh, belt. Wow. And the whole crowd, they came and helped pull wow. both the, the first officer and the young man out. So later on, this police officer that jumped with the kid, he was being interviewed. I call him a kid, but 17-year-old boy. Yeah. He was being interviewed. And it was learned that this officer just married his sweetheart from high school about a year ago. And they just had a brand new baby. What, what possessed you to forget about your wife? and your brand new baby girl, and willing to lose your life and jump with a total stranger. He says, I don't know. It was instinct. I just, it's the instinct to be kind. I felt I just had to do it. Yeah. Wow. He doesn't know why he did it. He just did it. Yeah. To save a total stranger. I saw this during the war. People willing to sacrifice themselves for total strangers. Why do we do it? It's an inherent quality. Yeah. When you see someone suffering, there's something inside of you that demands for you to act. But many of us today tend to override this inherent quality. Yeah, why do you think that is? Because of the exigencies of life. Our drive to satisfy the demands on life. You see? So there's an override of the natural instinct. To there's want an to be override. Kind. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So how does a person manage the override? How do they recognize it? By reading, you can never go wrong. Uh, by got it. <laughs> no, no. Right. No, reminders, right? Important yeah, re reminders. Re reminders. Reminders. Yes. Um, you, one, like I mentioned earlier, 
is through meditation. I really recommend meditation, you know, but not everybody is um, open to meditation. If they're open to prayer, or maybe just periods of contemplation to get in touch with themselves. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if contemplation can be a substitute word for meditation sometimes. Sure, sure. Like with the lowercase m, meditation. Sure. Because sometimes I think when, when people consider meditation, they're imagining sitting in a robe, you know, still for an hour. Yes. You know, and, and chanting a mantra. And that's not easy for a lot of people to do without a lot of practice so I'm wondering if um, just for an average person, meditation can mean contemplating and thinking about what's important to them. Sure. It could mean just hiking, yeah. going for a nice, quiet hike. It could mean going swimming, playing an instrument. And if you play an instrument, just get in, into it. can really send you into a deep state of you know, meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, originally, a really nice book can mm -hmm. also send you into a deep state of meditation. What meditation does, it reduces your preoccupation with self-interest, you see? Yeah. And the vast majority of people are driven by self-interest. So the difference between a person who has developed spiritual awareness is the more you develop spiritual awareness, the less your focus on self-interest. Sure, because you're aware of what's actually going on inside your You're mind. aware with a, with a, in this journey together. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. And what affects you affects me, maybe indirectly. So you begin to have like a broader picture, a broader perspective on life. Yeah. Yes. Seal, I want to talk with you a little bit about this interesting project that you're involved with now, the Support Kindness Project. Yes. That seems pretty appropriate to what we were talking about regarding kindness. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. As I mentioned to you, um, I've been um, holding classes and um, workshops on kindness and meditation. And it's primarily here in Hawaii. Um, and I think we want to expand our reach to the rest of the world. Um, we would like to develop a website that offers many of the things we're talking about here, training on kindness and compassion. How can people become more kind? So we can... Some of the things we're talking about in this in, in today, we can have that on our website. And the website will be in different languages of the world, different major languages. Great. Wow. So people can come in and learn. And then they can take this and go out to their community, whether it is and speak in high schools, at colleges, universities, and so on, or even um, community centers. And people can begin to learn together. And I think that if kindness can be accepted and practiced universally, everybody will benefit. We will all benefit. Crime rate will reduce. It will not wipe it out, but we will see a reduction. Well, you, it figures if people are focused on kindness, they're not going to be committing crimes. Right. You know, <laughs> right. So we will have a reduction of crime. Yeah. And they, you know, today we are overwhelmed my God, each time you turn on the news, it's overwhelming. You know, you can only take it maybe for 10 minutes. You have to turn it off. It's too much what yeah. is going on in the world. It really is. It's too much. People shooting each other. People, you know. How do you manage that, Zeal? I mean, you seem like such a, a balanced guy who has really incorporated all of these really wonderful values into your practice. 
how do you manage all of this stuff that's coming at us from all different angles? Oh, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult because I see it as people are not respecting, appreciating the sacredness, the sacredness of life. Life is very sacred. This journey is very special. Mm-hmm. This journey to earth is very special. And people don't have the awareness, you know, yeah. and, and they're not treating each other with um, respect for this, this collective experience that we came for. Yeah. And when I look at it, I cannot look too much. I cannot watch it too much because um, it, re- it really brings me down. It can be so upsetting and demoralizing. Yeah. It really can. Yeah, that's why we, we are, want to incorporate a nonprofit organization called Support Kindness. And we're doing a GoFundMe to raise about $25,000 to build a really superb website that will be accessible from anywhere in the world and offer free training programs and begin to develop training centers eventually according to the resources that we receive in many parts of the world. So we can have kindness centers. People can go in there and they can meditate, they can take classes on kindness and and compassion. Sounds amazing. And if this thing takes off, I think it will help. Yeah. You know, it will help. Undoubtedly. Even, Even if it saves a couple of lives a year, that's a couple of life that we don't have to lose. Well, you can't go wrong by being kind. You right? cannot go wrong by being kind. <laughs> you know, I've been saying that for a long time. Yeah, I think and, it's a uh, wonderful project, Zil. Thank you very much. And I hope we do get the support. Um, once we get the enough resources, uh, we will launch it. And we'll invite people to come and participate. Mm-hmm. Because it's not something I can do all by myself. Mm-hmm. I need help from a lot of people to sure. participate in it and to get the word out. Sure. And then it's something that we can all look back and be proud of. Yeah. yeah. Well, Zeal, I'll be making my donation to the project because I think it's a very worthwhile cause. Thank you very and much. And wish you the best of luck with that. Thank it's you. It's so needed in the world. I, I, I know it is. Yeah. Yes. Um, in the show notes, I'll be posting a link to be able to donate on the GoFundMe okay. for this for people if they're interested. Uh, do you have some other ways that people can reach it if they want to? Um, yes. It's GoFund, G-O-F-U-N-D dot me, M-E, slash, the number 80, 80, E-E-5-C-F-F. So if you click on that, I mean, it will take you to our GoFundMe account. Okay, great. Yes, yes. thank you for that. We'll, we'll, I'll be posting that in okay, the show good. notes as well. Good. And Zeal, if people are just more interested in you and your books and your message, uh, where can they find you? Are, do you have an internet presence? Yes, I do. You go to um, kindnessbooks, B-O-O-K-S dot com. Right. And you will find me. You also find my book, If you'd like to connect, I'd be very happy to hear from you. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. So are there any last thoughts you want to leave us with today? I think I would just like to leave us with the title of the book, You Can Never Go Wrong by Being Kind. You may be kind today, and you will not see the return kindness for a while. 
But kindness is something that nobody can give away. The reason is because it always comes back to you. Thank you. Yes. Dr. Ziel Okojeri, thanks so much for coming on with me today. Yes, thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, Aaron. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.